Haggai chapter 2 this morning. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Uh, sadly, uh, next week is the end. Such a short book means a short series. So, Lord willing, when we come back together next week, we'll finish up the book of Haggai. But the question that I want to ask and seek to answer this morning from this passage from God's Word is on the screen, how can a sinful people please God? How can a sinful people please God? Let's read this passage together. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. Follow along as I, as I read. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. And Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone uh, in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. It's been a couple of months since Haggai last spoke to the people, the seventh month at the beginning of chapter two, now the ninth month of the year, and he comes again to them one last time uh, with two messages. This week will be for us this week and next week. He comes to them one last time as they are gathered together. Since his last message, we don't know this from Haggai, but we know it from Zechariah. Uh, since his last message in the eighth month of the second year of King Darius, uh, the prophet Zechariah has also uh, arisen from the midst of the people to deliver the word of the Lord to them. By our calendars, this 24th day of the ninth month would be December 18th, 520 B.C. From the context of the passage, it seems likely that the people were gathered together for some sort of a, a formal foundation-laying ceremony. You know, part of the foundation had already remained. You know, they didn't rip up, the Babylonians didn't rip up these massive foundation stones. So that had been there, but there's all this rubble. They had already begun work, you know, 16, 18 years earlier. Uh, and then they had started to renew the work over the time of this. So it may seem that what, what he's talking about here is, is a, a commemoration ceremony, people coming together um, regarding the laying of the foundation of, of the temple, regarding the work that had been done since uh, what was September, when they started the work in repentance, we read about in chapter 1. Rather than addressing Zerubbabel, the governor, or Joshua, the high priest, Haggai this time asks two questions of the priests who were gathered, questions related to an application 
of the Mosaic Law. Uh, The first question, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and then the garment touches with his fold, that garment, part of his his, uh, robe, touches bread or stew or wine or oil, any kind of food, uh, does that become holy? There were different types of sacrifices offered by God's people. Many of them were not fully burnt up on the altar. So like when you think of a sacrifice that's offered, uh, if in your mind it's that, that whole uh, sheep, a whole goat, the whole bull um, burned to ashes, and, and that's in, that, in your mind that's all sacrifices, and then you just, you've skimmed Leviticus a little bit too much in Exodus. Sometimes part of the animal animal offered was given to uh, the priest as part of his provision from the Lord and his people. This was holy meat because it had been offered to the Lord, offered on the altar. Uh, But holiness can mean a few different things in different contexts. And and in this context, it's probably easiest to think of this as holy meat, he talks about in verse 12, um, as that which had been set apart for the worship of the Lord. Okay, so holy meat, Meat from these animals set apart as part of the worship of the Lord. And it was special in that way. And sometimes the priests might carry that holy meat home to eat it with their families, right? Sometimes it was all burned. Sometimes they had to eat it there. Sometimes it was returned to the offerer to eat in fellowship with the Lord. Sometimes uh, they were able to take that home to provide food for their families. Uh, they didn't have pockets. Apparently, all the women in the church would will resonate with that because I'm reminded constantly by Leanne that, Women's fashion doesn't include pockets. Um, I don't know why. I love pockets. So, but you guys, you ladies, can resonate. They didn't have pockets. So they would take a corner of the, a fold of their garment, and that's what they would use to carry it. Seems messy, but I don't know. So they would have carried, carried it in the fold of their garment, as the text says. According to the law, the garment, the meat's holy because it's been offered on the altar. The garment that they're wearing, their clothes, carrying the meat, according to the law, has been made holy as well because of its contact with the holy meat, okay? But the question is, what about, I know, like, other stuff touching the holiness, the, the holy garment that's holy because of the meat? Are those things holy? Uh, is there such a thing as maybe what we could call second-degree holiness or maybe third-degree holiness? Holy meat transferred to a holy garment, but can that... How far does it go? That's sort of the question he's asking. And the correct answer given by the priests here, we see um, end of of verse 12, the answer is no. Holiness does not continue to spread like that, right? If it was yes, then you'd ask, okay, but does the bread that touched the garment, that touched the meat, what about the table the bread was on? Is the table holy? The table to the house, house to the, you know, you could just keep going. But you don't have to because it doesn't spread to the bread. So when we think about the questions asked of the priest, the first point that he's trying to make, and they answer it correctly, is there, there is a limit to the transfer of holiness. That's the first piece that he wants to make. He's going to make a second question, a second point, and he's going to drive that point home. There is a limit to the transfer of holiness. Second question, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? These would be that same type of food, right? So somebody... Uh, comes into contact with a dead body, they become unclean according to the law. If they then touch those foods, well, they become unclean, right? Which is that same degree of that. And under the Mosaic law, well, here's what we need to understand. Under the Mosaic law, many, many different things 
can make a person unclean, right? Defects from birth, um, certain injuries, sicknesses, monthly cycles, childbirth, coming into contact with a dead body, all, of, all examples of ways that people could, maybe we could say, contract uncleanness according to this law. But what we need to understand and have, have a kind of a distinction in our minds is that, actually, that's not the point. Uh, uncleanness does not equal sinfulness. Okay? In the providence of God, someone who is born blind or with one arm or missing a finger, right, or somebody who in the providence of God, not through their own foolishness, not through their sin or anybody else's, somebody who lost an eye in an injury, right, they are, they are in a sense, they're unclean, but that doesn't mean that they're sinful, okay? So all those different things, like monthly cycles and things like that, too. Uncleanness does not equal sinfulness. It was not a sin to get sick or to give birth. But when a person was unclean for whatever reason, they could not come before the Lord to worship for a period of time. Sometimes they even needed to temporarily leave the community of God's people or the camp when they were encamped together in the wilderness. They needed to leave that community until the time of uncleanness was over. To ignore the law regarding uncleanness and come before the Lord while unclean, that would have been sinful. Right? The Lord says during this period of time or whatever, you need to keep your distance because of the Lord's holiness and the holiness of his sanctuary. You need to keep your distance. It's like not because they were sinful, but because of the purity of the Lord, but to disregard that, that becomes sinful. Does that make sense? Uncleanness does not equal sinfulness, but uncleanness can teach us about sinfulness by analogy. Both uncleanness and sinfulness are transferable. Uncleanness and sinfulness are infecting, infectious, I guess we could say. If an unclean person touched the foods mentioned in the first question, those foods would also be unclean. Priests answer that question correctly as well. It's good. They're two for two, 100%. I don't want to get bogged down in a big discussion of, of cleanness and uncleanness here. The point, uh, the point that he's trying to make and trying to see through these questions is that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness is. Right? That, that X degree does not make something pure or clean or holy, but it can make it unholy. And so if, if we're learning about sinfulness by uncleanness, we also need to be learning a lesson about the contagiousness, the infectiousness of sin. So I don't want to get bogged down in that. We're not preaching through Exodus or Leviticus about those type of things. Leviticus specifically and what it means and what it would look like in that community and how important the holiness of the Lord was. That's the lesson from Leviticus. And then whole books of the Bible like that, dedicated to that subject. So I don't want to get bogged down in all those different aspects. I don't think we need to to, to move forward. But I do want to mention one story as a side note. Thinking about uh, the contagiousness of um, uncleanness and the kind of the lack of contagiousness of holiness, how, how there's a limit to that. I was reminded of a story in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, Jesus met a man described as full of leprosy, an infectious skin disease. He's, he's, he's removed from the community of the people, removed until he dies. Never see his family, never be part of community, certainly never get within sight of the temple lest he defile the worship of God and his people. He was perpetually unclean and there was no hope of anything else. And the text says, when this man saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, if you want to, 
you, if this is what you want, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and do you know what he did? He touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And what I love about that story is how different it is than anything else that could have happened with any other Jew ever. Because Jesus' holiness and cleanness was transferable. He could not be contaminated, but he could transfer cleanness and wholeness onto those that he touched. So the question, I wonder if his holiness has been transferred to you. Questions for the priests and a lesson for the people is the next portion of this, verses 14 to 17. In case you're wondering what the point of these questions that Haggai presented to the priests, it's not just like thinkers like to argue about questions. This is not the case. He's not just kind of like, you know, I was wondering. Let's just talk about some finer details of the law. He had a point. He had a lesson for the people. So instead of just addressing the priests, he sort of turns and he, he makes this point. He gives this lesson. Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there, the temple, is unclean. The people's sin had defiled their work. The people's sin had defiled their work. So we ask the question from this text, How is it that a sinful people, how can they please God? Offering works to him. How can a sinful people whose hands are unclean and that which they come into contact with is infected by their uncleanness? Uncleanness teaches us about sinfulness. So you have sinful hands, then the works that you offer are sinful. How can a sinful people please God? And the answer is really simple. They, They can't. Sinful people can't please God. Impure hearts, impure hands utterly defile all holy works. Impure hearts, impure hands utterly defile all holy works. I'll give you an illustration of this. Leanne is keenly aware of transferable uncleanness. Clean clothes must not touch an unclean floor, and our floors are always unclean. Not because she doesn't try, just dogs, kids. That's not a condemnation of her. I think our floors are clean. She disagrees. Clean clothes must not touch an unclean floor. Unclean hands must not empty a clean dishwasher. And as a matter of fact, a dishwasher, I don't know if you knew this, a dishwasher, once emptied, immediately undergoes a transformation of cleanness to uncleanness once a single dirty dish, even a baby spoon, on the right side of the lower rack, the whole dishwasher becomes unclean. As soon as that one dirty dish down here, right? So you can't put something up here and then and pull back out. Even though the dishwasher was clean, it's now unclean. Single dish. 
If a dish comes into contact with any part of an unclean dishwasher, that dish immediately becomes unclean. Thus saith the wife. I'm not saying she's wrong. I'm just saying I don't care as much. I'm much more of a five-second rule kind of a guy. Or longer, but we don't need to talk about that. But if I tried to apply my philosophy on dishes to works offered to the Lord, I would be in serious trouble. Sin is that contaminating. Sin does defile all that it touches, rendering it unacceptable to the Lord. It doesn't seem that that Haggai is referencing the sin of misplaced priorities that he addressed back in chapter 1 that had kept them from beginning the work. They had repented of that. That that had been dealt with. The Lord had interacted with them and and spoken his, his blessing over them. So it doesn't seem to be that sin. But it seems that although they had begun the work, they had demonstrated repentance, they went to the hills, they got the wood, they came, even though they had demonstrated repentance, their hearts had remained unchanged. Perhaps they fell into the trap of thinking that merely doing good things, doing holy things, a holy work like rebuilding the temple, maybe merely by doing that, that would make them holy and acceptable to the Lord, right? I'm doing a holy work, so that's going to transfer back to me, making me holy, making me acceptable to the Lord. But God's point was that holiness was not transferable like that. Matter of fact, they had it the wrong way. Holiness wasn't going to make them clean. Their uncleanness was going to impact their work. So we try to understand different scenarios, some of which are are obvious to us. Like if a sinful person committing a sinful act, is that going to be pleasing to the Lord? Sinful person committing a sinful act. This was the easy part of this. (laughs) You're like, what's the trick? No trick. No, obviously, obviously not. I I, I don't hold out great hope for us to get all of these right now. So maybe we'll just keep it rhetorical. What about a holy person committing a sinful act? And we'd be like, well, they kind of stopped being holy at that point. That's also not pleasing to the Lord. So somebody who was clean or holy, doing an unholy, sinful thing, they're defiled. But then they, they missed it between this, that a, that a sinful person committing a holy act, that's also not pleasing to the Lord because that just becomes an outward thing. And Scripture is very clear, I think, from beginning to end, gets kind of brighter and more clear into the teaching of Jesus. But, but really, I can't, even, I can't even say that. Samuel, like it's not about sacrifices, he wants obedience, and then the other prophets say, hammer the same thing. So this isn't just like, oh, I, I only read the Old Testament. I misunderstood. No, it's, it's throughout. Right? It's not just acts that God desires. So a sinful person committing a holy act is not pleasing to the Lord. Only a holy person committing or, or uh, performing a holy act. That's the only thing that would be pleasing to the Lord. But these people were not holy. They were not living lives of faith and repentance before God. Therefore, they were defiling the work that they were doing for God, and it was not pleasing to him. And because of their sin, God's chastising, disciplining hand had remained on them. 
Like he did in chapter one, Haggai draws the people's attention to their circumstances. Now then, consider, let's see, I'm on verse 15, if you want to see where I am. Now then, consider, that's familiar, he said that several times before. Pay attention, think carefully, open your eyes, your ears, and your hearts to to know what's going on. Don't be distracted. Hey, you with me, (laughs) right? Consider from this day onward, before a stone was placed upon stone in the temple, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. Uh, You don't need to know what a measure is. I mean, if it's anything from a cup to a gallon, it doesn't really matter because if you think that there's going to be 20 of something and you only get 10 out of it, whatever from a teaspoon, right, to a gallon, like that's disappointing, okay? So it's like, oh, you kind of look over the harvest, And an experienced farmer would be like, oh, I know how many bushels of this I'm going to get. Like, I know how many heaps this is going to produce. But then when it actually came to storing that, that which was by all uh, estimation should have been 20 of whatever, was only 10. And then you look at the grape harvest, if that happened, and then transfer that, and then, you know, they squash it and the the juice comes out. They're going to age that into wine. Like, oh, we're going to get about 50 wine units, <laughs> measures, but they're only, they're only 20, right? So the same type of, of futility and emptiness that they'd experienced earlier, they're happening. And he, God, once again, points us to why this is happening. Verse 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Everything that they had expected had come up short Same type of feelings of dissatisfaction and futility that he expressed in chapter one. You've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And the specific scenarios are added here. All of their reasonable expectations from their harvests had proven false. Their harvests never produced as much as they expected. Just like in chapter one, the reason for this was because God's hand was acting against them. Because they had not turned to him in true repentance. Here in verse 17, God's sovereign, chastising hand against them had come as blight. Blight would be a withering heat coming. In Israel, it would have been coming from the east across the desert, kind of sweeping through and drying out all their crops. So it was blighted. They couldn't grow anything with withering heat. And it's like, well, that could just happen. Yeah, but God also had, had overly moist air at the wrong time coming in from the west, from the Mediterranean, and too much moisture producing mildew that also ruined the crop. So sometimes it was heat, not enough moisture. Sometimes it was too much moisture. And sometimes it was hail. I don't know that I can think of a single time throughout Scripture where hail is ever a good thing. I think it's always judgment from God, right? Crushing the tender plants as they come up, destroying all hope of a harvest. These maladies should have caught the people's attention. If they had been considering, if they had been paying attention, they would have known that something was up. It's like, well, why? Well, they weren't random acts, they weren't arbitrary. They were the promised covenant curses that God had warned the people about centuries earlier in passages like Deuteronomy 28 that I referenced about a month ago. 
Furthermore, the prophet Amos, one of the first prophets to come to the kingdoms of God's people, 250 years earlier than this, prophecies they would have had access to. Amos said this to the people, Amos chapter 4, verse 9. God says, I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. That's as close to a quotation that Haggai is making as I can imagine, right? So God says in Deuteronomy 28 from the mouth of Moses, if you're unfaithful to me, blight and mildew, locusts and hail, okay? Warning before the fact. Then Amos is saying, you know why you have blight and mildew? Locusts, he doesn't say hail there. It's because I'm sending it because you're not turning to me. They continue to not turn to him, right? They come back to the land. All of a sudden there's blight and mildew and hail again. And they're like, I wonder why this is happening. God couldn't make it any plainer than he already did in his word, yet they weren't paying attention. And they did not learn from this and turn. They, they should have been paying attention. They should have repented long ago, but they didn't. Paying attention to what God is doing has just been a refrain in my mind and in my heart as I've considered Haggai before and then during our time of preaching it, because I don't want the same thing to be said of me, that I failed to pay attention to what God was doing in my life. I don't want that to be said of you. I don't want that to be said of us. I, I want to consider my ways. I don't want to ignore God's chastisement and fail to return to him when he disciplines me. So over the course of the last six weeks or maybe beyond, when things have not gone the way that I had hoped or that I expected, I have often wondered, is this the chastising hand of God? Is this discipline because of sin that I've committed? I think those are good questions to ask. I think those are hard questions to answer. Without a prophet speaking to us directly from God, peeling back the curtain between what God is doing and what's happening in our lives, that's what Haggai's doing here. Without a prophet speaking to us directly from God, Haggai is speaking to us, right? God's word is for us. But Haggai didn't show up at Risen King Church in October or November of 2021 and say, hey, this is why this has happened to you. Right? Have you wondered your business? Have you wondered about your sickness? Here's what God is doing. Haggai has not said that to us. He sent that to them. But there's, that doesn't mean that we just like, well, I guess Haggai's not for us. We cannot have the same level of certainty as to what God is doing when difficulty enters our lives to say like, oh, this is the same pattern of what Haggai's addressing. And to complicate things further, right? I want to know, is this suffering, trial, difficulty, is this a result of my sin? That's the question I want to answer. And we don't know that for sure as the people that Haggai spoke to. And to complicate things further, we have good evidence from Scripture that God does not send trials, difficulties, and suffering only to those who are unfaithful or disobedient. I hope you see how that complicates it further, right? It would be really easy if it was every suffering tied to a specific sin in my life, every suffering is a call for repentance like that. 
And yet sometimes God brings suffering, trials, difficulties. Sometimes, often, probably go more than sometimes on that. He brings those things into the lives of the faithful and the obedient and the holy because he has a purpose for that as well. And so here are two possible scenarios. I've been trying to wrestle through this and, and sufferings, difficulties, trials. Sometimes it's just a no to something that I really wanted a yes for. Here are two possible scenarios when you go through a trial or a difficulty and a specific sin is revealed in that process. Right? Two, two ways that you can think about this. It could be what I want to call rebuking chastisement. It could be rebuking chastisement. The scenario would be this. You have persisted in sin for a period of time, and your heavenly Father has acted in your life against you in certain ways to discipline you, to rebuke you, to chastise you in order to get your attention and lead you to repentance. That's what's happening in Haggai. God, for for almost two decades, had sent rebuking chastisement to get their attention about specific sins in their lives. So the order being sin, then chastisement, in order to lead us to repentance. It could be a, a sickness, it could be a job loss, economic difficulty, other failed efforts. You know, God controls all things, so nothing's off limits to him. It's not just like, well, which areas of my life might that happen in? And which, which areas of my life won't it happen in? You can't ask that question. I can't answer it, right? We have a whole slew of examples throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, of sin being responded to by God for his people. And not unbelievers, his people, with rebuking chastisement, responding to a specific sin. But there's also what I want to call revealing chastisement. Other times the scenario might be reversed. Right? So the scenario was sin, chastisement, leading to repentance. God knows all things. Right? Amen? Good. God knows all things, including the sinful roots buried in your heart that may not yet have produced fruits, externally visible acts of wickedness in your life. The roots are there, right? Kind of like seeds that haven't germinated yet. It's all there in the sinful flesh, what you were born with, okay? Some of those things haven't sprouted yet. And so you don't know that they're there. You know who does know that they're there? God, who knows all things, knows what those sins are. And because he loves you as your father, he may send certain difficulties or trials or suffering into your life to bring those things to the surface. So then it's chastisement that actually reveals sin. When you respond sinfully to a suffering or trial or difficulty or loss, right? Do you see how that's, that's the opposite of that? And yet sin has happened. And it wasn't because of sin already committed that chastisement came. But God's saying, like, this is something that needs to be dealt with and brings that. Sometimes it's been used, the illustration of, like, heat doesn't put something into the tea bag. It draws out what's already there, right? And so the circumstances being right in the ground of your life, God doing those things draws out what's already there of sinfulness so that it can be dealt with. 
And that sin, once revealed, brings the conviction of the Holy Spirit and then once again leads us to repentance. See how the path of both of these things led us to repentance? And so like I said about a month ago, when at first was like, you know, maybe these difficulties are God's rebuking chastisement in your life, or maybe they're not. Maybe it's a revealing chastisement. And these, are, these aren't necessarily only things because it's not only sin that could happen, right? There could be that trial that comes in, a training, and then faithfulness could follow because God's strength is sufficient and grace is sufficient for us to go through trials in a way that is honoring to him. But either way, whether the sin happens and then there's the chastisement and you're like, why is this happening? And a sin comes to mind. And this is what I said a month ago. Anytime a sin comes to your mind, it's not Satan being like, you know what? You should, you should feel bad and confess this before the Lord, right? Like he wants just broad, uh, broad enjoyment of sin and broad guilt because Satan doesn't want anything specific to actually be dealt with in your life. So when specific sin comes to your mind, I think we can safely assume that's the Holy Spirit's conviction. Oh, is this because I responded to my wife this way? Is this because I yell at my children? Is this because I cheated at my job? Like, well, maybe or maybe not, but all of those things are a violation of God's will and you should repent of them. You see? God works to chastise, train, discipline his people to lead us to repentance. In the situations in my life, situations in your life, I do not know for certain which of these scenarios God is working out in my life. Is this because I've already exercised these sins or is this drawing out a sin? I think probably both of those things are just happening a lot. But when a sin comes to mind, I know that when God faithfully and mercifully reveals sin that is in my life, the only appropriate response is repentance. So, is there any sin in your life that you need to repent of. Are you paying attention to what the Lord is doing in your life? Or are you ignoring it? Consider your ways. And as these things come to mind, not even really giving examples, right? So if you're thinking of something, it's not me, okay? As these things come to your mind today or throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout your life. Admit them to the Lord and then ask for and receive his mercy and his forgiveness. And all those things are received because of Jesus. And then turn from those sins with the strength that he will provide for you to do so, right? That's repentance. I feel, feel the, the guilt. I know I've violated. I'm, I'm sorry that I've done that I, and help me to go in the right direction. As the Lord brings us through seasons of trials like this and rebukes us for sin or reveals sin in us, we begin to learn slowly, so slowly, we begin to learn that our sin is far more pervasive than we ever thought possible. There's so many more roots under that surface. It's kind of like, oh, this is probably the last one. There is a 0% chance that whatever that sin was that you're rebuked of or revealed by God's chastisement, 0% chance that that's the last thing hiding in your sinful heart. It's just so easy for us to think about a few surface level sins, lying, stealing, murder, 
immorality, blasphemy, substance abuse. It's so easy to look at those things and be like, I'm not doing any of those. But all those things are things that can be kind of addressed externally. And I'm not saying that those aren't serious sins. I'm just saying that they're obvious sins. And I know many of you, and I don't think, I don't think any of you have murdered anybody. I hope not. I mean, if you do, you know, repent and turn yourself in. That's serious. But there's more than just the obvious visible sins. And as, as maturing Christians, perhaps we should be far more concerned about subtle, hidden sins. Things like lust or envy that just infects all of our relationships. Coveting, right? The wanting of what someone else has. About subtle, hidden things like unforgiveness or bitterness selfishness, pride, self-reliance, self-exaltation, and on and on and on. These things hide below the surface like roots or seeds waiting for the right time to reveal themselves. And when they come forth, they were there all along. And as we grow in awareness about the presence of these things in our hearts, the question I asked earlier should become far more important to you about how can a sinful people please God or to be more specific, how can a sinner like you or me, how can we do anything to please God? You may not know that you're defiled, but do you know who does? God knows that you're defiled. God knows about all those sins that have yet to be revealed. And so if your sin is always there all the time, how can a sinner like you do anything that pleases God? Does not the sin in our hearts defile everything that we touch? A child or an adult might not remember that they sneezed or coughed on their hands when they fill up your water cup, but germs and bacteria and viruses don't only transfer intentionally. They are there whether we see them or not. And so it is with our sin. Sinful motivations, sinful desires, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions. God knows about all of them. God knows more about your sin than you do. So how can a sinful people please God? How is anything that we offer to him any holy work that we do pleasing to him at all. And if they aren't pleasing to him and can't be pleasing to him just by us trying better, then why should we even bother? If, I, if with unholy, unclean hands, I defile that which is offered before the Lord, that which I intend as holiness, that, is what, that which I intend to be pleasing to him is actually sinful to him because I have defiled that. And if I am defiled by my sin and everything that my defiled hands touch is defiled, then nothing that I can do is acceptable, pleasing to God. Matter of fact, all the good things that we try to do are actually just multiplying our sin. I was struck with this coming up on two years ago. Uh, I, I, I doubt I'll ever forget the scenario. I'm sure Leanne probably remembers it. It had to do with one of the uh, foster daughters that we had. Um, uh, I think many of you probably remember Bryce. Uh, difficult scenario. The Lord was revealing a lot in us, uh, revealing a lot of selfishness, a lot of, uh, a lot of anger, 
uh, a lot of pride, a lot of things needed to be dealt with. And we were trying to fulfill James 1.27, care for a fatherless little girl, okay? That's a holy work, right? I'm doing that to please the Lord. And yet day by day and hour by hour, trying to do that, more and more sin just kept pumping out of my sinful flesh. More and more anger, trying to deal with those things. And I'm, I'm, I'm washing the dishes. I'm wearing her because something needed to be done and Leanne needed a break. I had a ball cap on, I often do. Just taking the ball cap off, smacking me on the head with it, tossing my hair. Didn't really care about that. But just the aggravation of the interruption of what I wanted in my life and what it was doing to Leanne and what it was doing in our response to our girls. I'm just so angry. I don't want this. And I remember crying. Why was I crying? I was crying because what I wanted to offer to the Lord, to the father, to the fatherless, pure and undefiled religion, caring for orphans, was, was dripping with sin. And it's like, God, I'm, I'm trying to please you, but this can't be pleasing to you because all I know, I just, you see every, every word that I'm not saying and you feel the motivations of sin. This cannot be pleasing to you. So wouldn't it be better for me to stop doing the holy act, which is actually producing more sin? Would it be better, more pleasing to God for me to not do that which I wanted to do to please him because it can't be pleasing to him? And then it was just like, what else in life is that also not true of? Am I really holy enough to be standing in this pulpit right now? These hands are not that clean. And neither is my heart. And, and the days when I come up here, it's kind of like, oh, that's good. I'm excited about this sermon. I didn't yell at my kids this morning. I remember the last time that I did. Right? I'm not, I haven't been upset. Got up and prayed. Did all this stuff clean. No, I'm not. And so that which I felt washing the dishes with Bryce on my back is actually true of everything that I offer to the Lord. And so is the answer to stop or is there something else? And by God's grace, there's something else. How can a sinful people please God? And it's only through faith in Christ. A sinful, a sinner can please God only through faith in Christ and by his righteousness. Holy works offered by believing, repenting hearts are acceptable and pleasing to God. I'm just going to say that again. Holy works offered by believing, repenting hearts are acceptable and pleasing to God, but not because they are actually good enough or holy enough on their own, because they most certainly are not. They are acceptable and pleasing to God because of Christ. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, your sin and your guilt transferred to Him, He took God's punishment. Uh, uh, guilt transferred to him. He took God's punishment that you deserved and his perfect undefiled righteousness was transferred to you. And we talk about this. It's obviously referring, I hope it's obvious to you, referring to justification. And I'll give another illustration about this. Imagine the smartest, most conscientious student in a class. We'll call him Joshua. 
case you missed that, it's because Joshua, Yeshua is Jesus in Greek. We'll call the student Joshua. Joshua is taking the final exam next to the laziest student who slept through class every day and never cracked open their textbook to study, and we'll call him Peter. Joshua works through the exam diligently, fills in the right answers with confidence. Peter stares at the exam as if it was in another language and begins looking for multiple choice questions to guess at, but there aren't any. It's all essays. He's doomed. What if, when the exam was done, diligent, faithful Joshua swapped papers with lazy, unfaithful Peter, putting his own name at the top of Peter's exam and allowing Peter to do the same? When the tests are graded, who would receive the reward of a perfect score? Peter. And who would suffer the consequences of failing? Joshua. It's exactly what would you, like what Jesus has done for us. He took our punishment and gave us his reward. That's his justification. God acts towards us as if we were as perfectly righteous as Jesus. And the amazing thing is that this is not the end of his grace toward us. So many people misunderstand the Christian life and think that, that at that moment, that transfer, that that's all that Jesus does for us. And it's like, all right, you're clean? Okay, you're holy? Clean slate? All right, now go. Do your best. Jesus fixed you up to this point. The rest is up to you. This is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. In a way, that's, that's only the beginning of God's grace toward us, we could say. The question that we're asking is, is how can a sinful people please God? And justification is the foundation of that answer, but it's not the totality of it. After justification, we can rephrase the question to what's here. How can sinful believers please God? Right? Because the whole of this sermon was not like, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ, then nothing is pleasing to God and you have not found the solution to that problem. You are unholy committing unholy acts. And there's judgment that comes for that. And it's more than just your crops failing. It's more than just economic difficulty. It's the wrath of God forever. But as believers, right, that's what we're talking about. We're sinful believers, those who are justified and then in our lives, now living lives that are trying to please God, we're still sinful. How can sinful believers please God? And the answer is still Christ. Why, why bother still trying to care for her I've got all of this, this wrestling with this sin. Why bother still coming to the pulpit? Why bother still going to the needy? Why bother continuing to give or to serve or to mentor or disciple? Why bother to continue fighting sin if it's never going to be good enough on your own? And the answer is Christ. Christ's cleanness, Christ's holiness continues to purify the works of his people so that they are acceptable to God and genuinely pleasing to him. Jesus, in his transferable holiness, cleanses that which you offer to God with a believing heart. I think that must be part of what Paul means when he wrote to the Corinthians that Christ Jesus has become our sanctification. Jesus is not just your justification. Jesus is your sanctification. Jesus is your glorification. Eternal life is knowing him. All of it comes back to Jesus. 
And that doesn't make our sin irrelevant, of course, right? That gets us back to Haggai. And we're doing these things. It doesn't mean that it's like, oh, okay, great. Why don't we just continue to sin? Because then grace and the purity of Christ, that'll just be highlighted all the more. And Paul knew that stupid sinners like us would ask that question. Oh, if more sin means more grace and more grace means more glory, then the more I sin, the more God gets glorified, I'll just keep sinning. Glory to God. Paul's like, you're an idiot. PJV. God forbid is also not what the text says, but it gets the point across. May the thought never be conceived. Gets close to what is said there. Like, how could you think that? We must, the sin that is there, must, we must still be disciplined and trained, rebuked and chastised. And when God convicts us in this way, we must still repent. But as we repent, we can trust that Christ makes our imperfect works acceptable to God. If he doesn't, then nothing offered is acceptable to God. Ever. The last part of Haggai's message is blessing from the Lord. Consider the boundless mercy of the Lord. Haggai's message to God's people ends with a promise of blessing. Apparently, God knows that their hearts are changing and that by faith they do repent and they do long to please him with their building. They don't want merely to go through the motions of rituals and ceremonies, doing holy works with dirty hands and dirty hearts. And although God has been against them up to this point, he tells them to mark this day on their calendars. Circle the 24th day of the ninth month and think about this is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The wording of these verses can be a bit confusing. It's like, is there seed yet in the barn? And commentators are like, uh, yes, uh, no, I don't, I don't know. Is, is it? Like, oh, okay. And then, then these other things, like, yeah, yeah, I really want to consider. And nobody has like, oh, this is definitely what God's questions mean. Haggai knew. I think the people knew. But we're like, yeah, is, is it? I don't know. But here's what I think is happening. Based on the time of year in December, all of their sowing of crops would have already taken place at this point. And they're waiting through a couple of colder winter months to see what will grow. What will the spring harvest look like? And they don't know yet. There's no seed in the barn. This is, this is one method. I think this makes sense. No, there's not seed left in the barn because they planted all of it. But nothing's produced yet because nothing at this point would have produced anyway. In the past, they've sown much and they ended up harvesting little. And now there's no seed left in the barn because they've sown all of it. There's been no harvest yet because growth takes time. But God promises when harvest comes this spring, it's going to be different. From this day on, these seeds planted right now, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to bless you. I am no longer against you. You will not live under the covenant curses that you have been suffering under. I'm with you, for you. 
and you will live under the covenant blessings that come from faithfulness to me. Even though we then have sinned so greatly and have sinned so frequently, yet the Lord continues to faithfully and lovingly discipline us and graciously bless us. And as I thought through this, and asked asked the question, why? Why? How? Why? I wasn't the first one to ask that. wasn't the first to reflect on it. But I thought of David. And I thought of David in Psalm 103, meditating on the promise of a merciful God, how he responds to his sinful people. Even when they repent, even when they trust, they're still sinful people. And so I'd ask you, Will you read with me this portion of Psalm 103 out loud? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That mercy and grace, that abounding steadfast love is freely offered, but it was not purchased cheaply. It came at the priceless cost of our Lord Jesus Christ, laying down his life for us on the cross. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Our Heavenly Father, the Holy Lord of hosts, thank you for your faithful discipline of us as your children and for your generous mercy toward us as undeserving sinners. And thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whose life and death on the cross makes possible our relationship with you. Help us to remember and confidently trust that Jesus' perfect works purify us and even make our imperfect works acceptable in your holy sight. Please draw our hearts to you in love and in humility as we come to your table to receive your grace for us in Christ. Please increase our trust in Christ as we taste this bread and this cup which point us to Christ's body and blood given for us. Amen. I believe Ken come to prepare and serve the elements for us. The deacons will dismiss you by row. Uh, we'll come single file, receive the elements, return to our seats. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, and we believe that Christ himself calls you to come to his table. And as surely as you receive from the hands of the one who serves, so surely you received grace and forgiveness from Jesus Christ when you put your faith in him. So we come in that humility, undeserving, Come knowing with confidence that it's because of that blood that we've been purified from sin and our relationship with God is one in which he is pleased with us as we live lives for his glory.